Libby writes with Brian Scott Libby. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What is up on a Thursday? I am Brian Scott Rippey. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippey Rides podcast. Today, we've got Nick Suss, Titans beat writer for the Tennessee and old pal of mine. You may remember him from covering Ole Miss for the Clarion Ledger for quite a few years. Had him on to chat about covering the Titans, the NFL, being on the beat, and what's going on with the Titans lately. And what the Titans did in the draft, as well as kind of the direction as a franchise and a lot of different stuff about just covering the NFL and uh, life on the NFL beat. So buckle up. It's a good conversation. I think you'll enjoy it. Before we get to that, though, I want to remind you, the podcast brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Picks? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gambling handicapping website. The inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, an advanced modeling mechanism that has propelled Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. Football season's around the corner. Build up your bankroll before then by signing up for Skybox NASCAR, Skybox NASCAR, Mark Harris, is crushing it right now. If you want to bet on obscure sport and print money every week, I'd suggest you do that. And then go online and sign up for a picks package. They have any picks package that'll fit your price range. You can try it for a day, a week, a month. I'd recommend signing up for the year-long all sports access. You'll thank me later. They're the only way to profit in the long run. You're not going to profit off your own brain and your own leans, you know, 10 minutes before kickoff. Sign up for Skybox Sports Picks today. Type in the promo code RIPPY, R-I-P-P-E-E. That'll get you 20% off. They'll send you the picks in a color-coded spreadsheet with uh, based off of units, how confident they are in it. And boom, you are more equipped to profit than you were five minutes before signing up for Skybox. Check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg if you're a Rippy Wright subscriber. That's rippywrights.substack.com. Get a free newsletter from me and discounted meats right now. It's a 16 ounce or six three ounce bacon wrap fillets for 20 bucks. It's about a $40 valuation you're getting there for 20 bucks. Just go in there, show Greg proof of subscription. You'll get you, he'll get you set up. Then go find all your own favorites. It's the best butcher shop in the world. It's prime grilling season. LB's is a crown jewel of Oxford. Make your grilling experience great by going to LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. All right, here is Nick Suss on the Tennessee Titans, the NFL draft as a whole, covering an NFL beat, and a whole bunch of other stuff. All right, we now welcome on old friend Titans beat writer for the Tennessean, Nick Suss, if that name sounds familiar, it's because he covered Ole Miss for quite a while for the Clarion Ledger, moved on to bigger and better things. I think the last time you were on a podcast I hosted, it was a much different world, much different iteration. It was the middle of COVID, and we did, well, it was like a Mount Rushmore to sitcoms, and that was yeah. right in your wheelhouse. And then I remember I asked you about something that wasn't a sitcom. You're like, not my thing. And I was like, all right, this is strictly <laughs> sitcoms. Dead in the middle of COVID, the Tiger King era, if you want to call it that. And uh, that podcast was electric. They're like, y'all got to do that again. I was like, I loved it, but let's hope we never have to do something like that again. How you been, man? No, I, I it's been good. I think we might have done one since, but everything since COVID has been the same day. It's been three and a half years of nothing since so we're we're pretty much back on that day we're back in the uh talking about sitcoms podcast i i it's still already my identity here in nashville today somebody accidentally removed me from a group chat that i needed to be in and work and somebody was like oh this is a situation comedy for you i'm like no no that's that's (laughs) that's not how this works but but thank you for knowing my thing so last five six months for you have been pretty exciting yeah you take a new job to cover the tennessee titans you do, I won't call it rare, but you do kind of the uh, unconventional 
take out, like leave a team in the middle of its peak football season to take over another team in the middle of its football yeah. season. Kind of like a lot, a short learning curve at that point. It was probably helpful for you because you followed the Titans very closely yeah. um, when you weren't covering the NFL. I guess we'll start there. So you take the job, if I remember correctly, sometime mid-October, I think I believe the Titans were like playing the Texans and you were kind of like yeah. in limbo before that. Was that around Halloween? Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, it was around Halloween. I was in College Station on Saturday night and then Houston Sunday morning. So I, I covered oh, uh, my nice, life. That's one convenient aspect. Yeah, it was convenient for flight scheduling, very inconvenient for having to, you know, cover back-to-back games. And I'm not going to try and complain. I know your listeners are... Uh, wishing they could go to a college game and an NFL game in back-to-back days. But as far as ending one job and starting another job, you don't want to be at College Station at one in the morning and then think, oh, I got a 3.30 kickoff. I'll make this work. One of the last football road trips I took was in 2019 to A&M. I like, was it old enough to rent a car without like the fee or insurance or whatever that nonsense is being absurd? So I actually had to take a flight from Houston to College Station. Yeah, yeah. It was like 12 minutes. And the worst part about it is the flight back, like to get to Houston or Hobby, I think I flew out of to get back to Memphis. It was like, yep, this thing's going to be leaving at 510 in the morning. And I was like, what? (laughs) This is brutal. But then I was like, man, it has just been quicker to take a bus because I think my flight down there got canceled. And someone was like, just take a bus. It's the same length. I was like, all right, let's do it. So you move over. Like you said, you just pretty much start covering the team the next day in Houston, let's just start from the sheer dynamics of that. Like, what was the learning curve like? How did you kind of uh, adjust to, okay, I just covered Lane Kiffin and Ole Miss get a nice win. Now I have to figure out what's going on with this beat. What was that like? I keep using the metaphor that it's like being a fluent Spanish speaker. And then somebody says, speak French. Like a, a lot of the words are similar. So you feel like you should know how to do it, but then you're like, oh, I don't speak French. What am I doing here? Uh, so like, A lot of it was good culture shock, having open locker rooms, getting to talk to players when you want to makes it easier to learn things. But like this might be too inside baseball. I don't know if your listeners care about this stuff, but like in college, so much of it is you don't know anything and nobody will tell you anything. And in the pros, everybody's telling you stuff and you have to parse through why would this person want me to know this? Uh, it's It's a very different thing of like, I I was thinking about it when, when Kermit got fired and I was like, if I had to report on this Chris Beard situation, I would know nothing. Like I covered Ole Miss for five years. I had some really good sources who I trusted would tell me the truth. And they would all say like, sorry, buddy, let's get drinks afterwards. Like just nobody can tell you anything in the pros. It's pretty different. And yeah, it, it's it's almost like covering like a cartel to go covering like reality TV. Like it's yeah, like, yeah. Oh, this is this top seeker operation to just, Oh, everyone's going to tell you everything. You just got to decipher what's true and what's not. And you had had experience with that because you did that MLB internship. Same right, thing yeah. I did. You did it twice. So you had you knew it was going to be open locker room, and you kind of knew to some degree, like, all right, this is a different deal here. I, it's hard to describe. It's just a different – the entire operation is just so much different. And so I imagine to some degree that made the learning curve a little bit easier. But, like, that first Sunday when you covered that Texans game – like, how do you start the process of meeting people, developing relationships? Like, of course, that's midseason. They already kind of know some of the guys there. I imagine that they see a billion times a week. I remember variable joking on that busting with the boys podcast one time. Uh, he sees the media more than his wife and kids a lot of the time. Yeah. How did you start with just like, what's up? I'm Nick. I'm here. Like, how, how did that process go midseason? I, I got lucky and then eventually unlucky that I ran into John Robinson in the hallway at the Texans game, the first game I covered. So I got to introduce myself to the GM that way. I 
followed Vrabel out of a press conference one day. Um, that just I think that first Wednesday I was there, followed him out to shake his hand. Uh, a lot of it's just that Jeffrey Simmons knew me as Mississippi guy for one or two yeah. days. I think he probably forgot that at some point. But like you tell people what you know about them. Chris Conley was in the locker room who I covered when he was at Georgia and I was at Georgia. Sometimes you just use those connections. I also got lucky that the columnist at the Tennessee and Gentry Estes covered Georgia when I was in school. So he knew me before I got there and he was very helpful with connections. Some of the other people on the t- Titans beat were helpful and encouraging. The The Tennessean beat or the Titans beat at the Tennessean, funny enough, had cycled through a lot like the Clarion Ledger Ole Miss beat had uh, before I got there. So people were used to there being a new guy. I think I was the fourth in six years or something like that. Uh, so people are generally kind enough to help you meet people. And then luckily I had two or three other friends who had covered the NFL who sent me their entire directory of every agent they could find. And I just started calling people. I don't know if everyone picked up. I can tell you most didn't, but the people who picked up, I'm, I'm thankful for it. And it's still a work in progress. I don't think I'm great at it yet. I think I'm good at what I'm good at and I'm still struggling at what I would struggle at in Oxford, but it's been a fun transformation trying to discover how to do this thing. And you go from one program at the time that was really on the up and up. Ole Miss was eight and one at the time when they left College Station. The Titans, we were talking about it right before we started recording, they're like five and two. And it wasn't just like, all right, they're going to coast in the playoffs. We'll see what happens afterward. About three weeks after you take the gig, kind of all hell breaks loose. So at the time, <laughs> the Titans are like, what, five and two? I think they win that game in Houston. Um, they had a couple, maybe a loss or two mixed in after that. I'm kind of butchering the summary here. But what was interesting, I distinctly remember this one. So you're only a couple weeks on the beat. They play a game at Lambeau. Um, yeah. That was a primetime game. Wasn't it like a Sunday or th- Thursday? Thursday, night? Thursday, yeah. yeah. Th- so they win 27-17. It was one of the more impressive wins uh, I can remember as someone that casually follows the Titans now a lot closer when I was younger. And it was like, all right, this is kind of the classic Vrabel win. Bunch of guys injured. They go up there in the cold. It was kind of cool, like snow flurries game. It's like, all right, this team is real. And if they could just get healthy, uh, they'll be fine. That it did not happen. They actually did not win another game after that. Had kind of historic collapse Missed the playoffs. The GM gets fired a few weeks after that um, Tennessee tie, or excuse me, that uh, Green Green Bay win. What was that like? Like as now we kind of shift the focus to the subject of the team you cover. It, it was crazy to me, and as someone again that follows it, I would say from an arm's length, I was a little bit surprised by the John Robinson firing, just because at the same time, like I'm just like, all right, this doesn't seem like this guy's fault. What did you kind of sense of how the mechanism of all that came to be and why it happened then? It was, there was so much happening all at once. I think one part that you mentioned or forgot to mention uh, within hours of that Packers game, the offensive coordinator, Todd Downing was arrested for DUI driving home and they didn't win another game after that one. 27 points in green Bay was the most points they scored all year. I don't think they broke 24 in another game. Other than that, they were not a, potent offensive team and so the next game after green bay would have been cincinnati if i'm remembering correctly and they lost a rematch of the playoff game that they'd lost the year before in a not super competitive game and then the game following that was a debacle in philadelphia where they lost by four or five scores and aj brown clowned on them like AJ caught two touchdowns. He was dancing. He was whipping the goalposts. Uh, he was 
doing what you would expect to the team that traded him away. And it's impossible to specifically say that the GM was fired because AJ Brown made them look foolish. I, I don't want to insinuate that that's why it happened, but timeline wise, that's when it happened. And you look at the roster that John Robinson had built and the Titans had back-to-back years where they were the most injured team in football in 2021 it didn't matter. They were the number one seed. They went 12 and five 2022. They couldn't withstand those injuries. And you kind of saw how paper thin the roster was and they were thin at the offensive line, which is where John Robinson had missed on draft picks of Isaiah Wilson and Dylan Radins who hadn't really panned out very well. And um, there was one other high profile offensive line pick that I'm blanking on at the moment, but they'd missed on a couple of those. Caleb Farley was a first rounder who hadn't panned out and the secondary was allowing more yards per game than any other team in the NFL. You, you start to look at how thin they were at linebacker, how thin they were at receiver after the A.J. Brown trade, and you start to understand, oh, this is a guy who traded away a draft pick for one year of Julio Jones. This is a guy who uh, signed Robert Woods and the offense didn't work with him. You look up and down and there was a justification for saying, oh yeah, this roster was not in good shape. It makes sense to move on. Then you look at the flip side of it. He is the only GM this century since 2000 who has been fired in the middle of a season where his team had a winning record uh he they didn't have a winning record because they lost a bunch of games after he was fired but at the time of his firing the titans were seven and four seven and five only gm this century to be fired mid-season with a with a winning record that's really really tough to justify especially when you consider he had never been the gm of a team with a losing record he got there and 2017 or 2016 rather and they probably went nine and seven four years in a row and then kind of emerged as a playoff team after that it, it was really tricky a really tricky situation to parse but going through how it happened you look at where the roster is right now and you think oh gosh that made sense a little bit and they had that one run through the playoffs where they win at uh at uh, New, England, New England and then in Baltimore to get to the AFC championship game. They lose to the uh, Kansas city chiefs in the AFC championship game. And it's like, all right, this team probably overachieved a little bit, but Hey, they've kind of arrived. Like they seem to be a model of consistency. And you mentioned, I'd forgotten the detail of they fired John Robinson the day after whenever it happened after, after yeah. AJ Brown clowned on him. And you're right. It's like, it, did it happen because of that? I mean, no, but like if he wanted to do it and then the angry owners like, do I just put the exclamation point on this and do it the day after AJ Brown, the guy he traded away, just rips them to shreds. We'll start there because I felt like for the Titans, that was kind of a seminal moment of one of seminal moments over the last 12 months. They lose that playoff game at home as the number one overall seed in the divisional round to who, the team that ultimately made the Super Bowl that year, Joe Burrow. And the Cincinnati Bengals. It was a game where Joe Burrow was on his back. It felt like the entire game what was it, eight, nine sacks, and they still yeah. managed to lose the football game. Ryan Tannehill was not very good in that game. That left a sour taste in their mouth. And then you get to the A.J. Brown trade. And the Titans weren't exactly uh, plush with options at receiver. He was in a contract year. It was the classic case of uh, they didn't want to pay this guy this amount of money, so they traded him. And usually when you trade the really good guy and you get a haul back, like unless something really pans out, you kind of end up looking like the bad end of the deal because the guy you traded away is kind of the known commodity. He's awesome. You weren't there when that happened, so this is a little unfair, but I imagine in covering the whole John Robinson firing, it probably went back in large part to that trade, or at least you had to figure out and get familiar, okay, what actually happened here? In your mind, what do you think happened there and why did that happen? 
the trade itself is interesting because if you look at kind of the tentacles of what happened, the Titans made another first round trade that night to move back. So the four players they ended up drafting based on picks they acquired from AJ Brown were Traylon Burks, Nicholas Petit Frere, Roger McCreary, and Kyle Phillips. Kyle Phillips missed most of the season with an injury. So three regular starters, Traylon Burks, who was pretty good, Roger McCreary, who was almost really good. He was good most of the year. And Nicholas Petit Frere, who was good enough on a really bad offensive line. Uh, Three starters is better than one superstar. Generally speaking, four starters is definitely better than one superstar. But the Eagles made the Super Bowl and A.J. Brown was the third or fourth leading receiver in the NFL. The Eagles clearly got the better of the trade as the Titans regressed and didn't have, I think their leading receiver last year, it was Robert Woods. I think he was like 77th in the NFL in receiving yards, which is inexcusable for your leading receiver to be in the mid seventies. But you kind of parse through the dynamics of why that trade happened. And if you remember last off season was such like a transformative moment for the market of what wide receivers were paid. So before last off season, I think other than Michael Thomas, Deandre Hopkins, and maybe one other receiver who I'm blanking on. I don't know if any receiver had been paid more than 20, $21 million a year. And then last offseason, I think 12 receivers got 20 plus. AJ Brown was asking for 25, a year, or was asking for 22 and a half a year from the Titans. The Titans were offering 18 plus incentives, which would have gotten them up to 20 or 21. And the Titans just wouldn't budge on the number. That's unfortunate because had they given him the 22, it would have been cheaper than what the Eagles gave him. The Eagles gave him 25 a year. But AJ said he wanted to remain in Tennessee. The the Titans wouldn't stick with that number. Then you look at what other receivers were getting paid last offseason, what Tyreek Hill got paid after the trade, what Devontae Adams got paid after the trade, Cooper Cup got his raise, DK Metcalf, Terry McLaurin, DJ Moore. These were all receivers of AJ's caliber, or in some cases probably less accomplished than AJ, who were getting more than what the Titans were offering. So from AJ's perspective, it makes perfect sense to want to move on. From the Titans' perspective, Nobody in the NFL pays a quarterback or running back and a receiver top dollar. It's just unfeasible to do. And the Titans are in this rare commodity of having Derrick Henry. Obviously, it's not a bad thing to have Derrick Henry. Every team in the NFL would want to have somebody like Derrick Henry, but paying $10.5 million a year for a running back really messes with what you can do cap dynamic wise. And I think John Robinson knew that Jeffrey Simmons also needed to be paid and we saw what Jeffrey Simmons ended up making this year. I think 21, 22 and a half uh, a year. He's the second highest paid defensive tackle in football behind Aaron Donald. So, I mean, the dynamics there were pretty financially motivated. Um, obviously, it's ingrained in a lot of people's memories, the image of Mike Rabel not looking all too pleased live on NFL Network while the trade happened. Uh, I, I, Say I don't the least. Think- I don't think everybody was in agreement that it was the best thing for the Titans' future to trade arguably the most dynamic receiver since the team moved to Nashville. Uh, but man, it, it felt like the beginning of the end. If you want to trace something back for John, John Robinson, it might've been the Isaiah Wilson pick. It might've been the Caleb Farley pick. The, the 2020 and 2021 drafts weren't very good. The 2022 draft seems pretty good. I mean, Chiga Conquo, we haven't mentioned yet. Plus Burks, plus Petit Frere, plus McCreary. They got a lot of contributions from rookies last year, but the two drafts before them were kind of a desert. 
it seems like the most publicly available moment to like mark the beginning of the end because you also have like the, the contrast like that you it was a good point you mentioned about the Derrick Henry piece of it it's like they have this awesome commodity in Derrick Henry but how many times is giving the running back great money in that kind of second third deal whatever it is how like how often does that work out for the team look at Zeke Elliott in Dallas like it's a great player but then like whenever you hit that hill and he starts going down the wrong side of the hill that starts looking like a really really poor financial investment that's just kind of where the market is running back wise and that further complicated as you mentioned the AJ Brown and how do you kind of pay all these guys but there was kind of also the aspect of it's not the same thing because Jalen Hurts is on a rookie deal and from this sheer standpoint the Eagles had more flexibility, but you have this quarterback that you think can't win, like in spite of his talent. So they surround him with really good weapons. I'd put Ryan Tannehill in that category. And it's like, you're taking a weapon and trading him away. And like, what do you have left weapons wise? And that really left the Titans with the huge void this past year, as you mentioned, their leading receivers, Robert Woods, 77th or whatever he said in the NFL in rece- receiving yards. Not great. Wouldn't say that's number one caliber stuff by any stretch of the imagination. And so it all comes tumbling down very quickly for this organization. They bought him out. They missed the playoffs. And then it's kind of like, all right, what's next? And so they go into this draft. And that's kind of what I get to next. They get a new GM in. They go into this draft. The 2022 draft, as you mentioned so far, is like, all right, it seems like, okay, this has turned out fine. Like, kind of want to see how they build on this. And then they go in and it feels like the Titans fan, or at least from what I read from it, it's like, all right, well, they seem very angry because they did not get a receiver. So let's, let's fast forward to this draft. Yeah. Did you, what did you think they were going to do in the first round? They end up taking the tackle out of Northwestern. What is it? Peter Skorinski. He looks like Skaransky, the most yeah. offensive lineman of all time. Like you knew they needed a receiver. How shocked were you? They went uh, offensive line in the first round. What was kind of your read on that? And what was the surprise meter for you? can't say I was surprised because if anyone watched Titans football last year, they know the offensive line was putrid. It was just awful, awful, awful offensive line play. And they went out and they addressed it in free agency. Andre Dillard, a former first-round pick, they signed from the Eagles and uh, Daniel Brunskill. Why am I forgetting his name? Um, they they signed from the uh, the 49ers as a guard. They, they brought in some offensive linemen, but Skaronsky was – my highest rated offensive lineman on my board for whatever that's worth. I think he is the best pure blocker in the draft. And when the bears chose not to pick him at number nine, I wasn't surprised at all that the Titans went for him at number 11. It made a ton of sense. I was surprised that they didn't go with a receiver in the second or third or fifth rounds, but some of that had to do with the trade for Will Levis that comes in the second round. And I'm sure you want to talk a lot about that, but yeah, they didn't pick a receiver until the seventh round. The only free agent receiver they've signed this offseason was Chris Moore, a guy from the Texans who was their number two or three receiver last year, who's a solid enough number two or three. But your receiving core is built around uh, Braylon Burks, who was hurt for a good part of his uh, rookie year and hasn't really proven himself yet. Uh, Kyle Phillips, who was hurt for almost entirety of his rookie year. And then Nick Westbrook-Akina and Chris Moore, who are somewhat proven three and four options and you have the rookie Colton Dowell out of UT Martin, Racy McMath, uh, Reggie Roberson, Mason Kinsey. You have a bunch of bottom of the roster guys who might compete for a roster spot. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost without question the worst receiving core in the NFL. It's definitely the least career production of any receiving core in the NFL. And that's a lot. That's a tough thing to build around when you're either having Ryan Tannehill in a contract year or, 
a guy like Will Levis or Malik Willis, who's completely unproven playing quarterback. And the GM they bring in is from San Francisco, Ray Carthon. Am I saying that? Ran, yeah. Ran Carthon, excuse me. So they bring him in, and it seems like, like, not the pitchforks are out for him, but it seems Titans fans are very frustrated. Some of that's like, how did this Levis thing make any sense? Why didn't they take a receiver? How much of that frustration do you think is piggybacking off of everything we've just discussed to this point? And how much of it do you think it's just genuine frustration at this new GM? I think a lot of it's frustration based off of you spend four months reading about what the team needs and when the team doesn't do it immediately, it feels like all hell is breaking loose and everything's breaking. (sighs) Whatever you think about Will Levis and we've watched the sec, we've seen Will Levis. We know what kind of a player he's been. He was probably worth a top 15 pick based on potential. You got him at 33. If it hits, you just got a franchise quarterback for a steal. If it doesn't hit, you traded a third round pick for a gamble. I I really don't see the downside to trying to bring in somebody as upside heavy as Will Levis. But the frustration is you used your first three picks on an offensive lineman who most wheelchair armchair pundits argue is a guard, not a tackle. I think he's a tackle, but he has really short arms by offensive lineman standards. And a lot of people think that makes him a guard instead of a tackle. He, never mind. He was a unanimous All-American at Northwestern, which is impossible to do. But you draft him, and then you draft Levis, who a lot of people in the state of Tennessee don't think is very good based off of his performances against schools like Tennessee and Vanderbilt, both of whom he lost to last year. Then you use a third-round pick instead of going and getting a receiver on a running back. And you already have Derrick Henry and you used a draft pick on a running back last year and Hassan Haskins. And then you don't have a fourth round pick because of a trade you made last year or two years ago, rather. So then fifth round comes around and you pick a tight end. And then the sixth round comes around and you pick another offensive lineman. And this frustration of everyone's looking at the roster. Everyone can see nobody on this team has more than 550 yards in a season at any point in their career. And it's really tough to build an offense around receivers with that little production. And why aren't you fixing that obvious hole? And the Titans are sitting back and saying, it's not about fixing holes. It's about getting value. And these are guys that should have gone 30, 40 picks ago, and we're still picking the best players we can. And we're enriching the roster that way. That's not easy to sell because if you're picking a guy, oh, he's really good. He's going to be the best backup running back we've ever had you're still using a pick on a backup running back instead of improving a place where maybe you could have found a starter. And the Levis piece of it is interesting to me. I remember uh, that Thursday night I was driving home from taking engagement picks. I think you've probably, uh, pictures I should say, I'm not that young anymore, can't have the youth lingo, but I'm reading something that night um, about how, I think it was like a Paul Kaharski note where it was just like, hey, like the Titans didn't view Will Levis as a top 13, 14 players. So they just weren't going to draft him. And then they turn around and they trade up and they get him in the second round. What did you make of the reasoning to draft Will Levis? I don't necessarily hate the pick. It came at a weird, a lot of this seems like very like unfortunate, like public relations narrative uh, framing from the Titans. It to some degree, maybe some, a lot of it's not self-inflicted. I guess what I'm getting at is he was the green room guy. He was the yeah. dude that was at the draft that every camera sat on because he kept going or he kept sitting there and he wasn't getting picked. So he was kind of like, you know, the Twitter asshole of the day, just the internet punching bag. And then the Titans trade up to get him. What did you make of the Will Levis pick and why the Titans did it? 
Yeah, shameless plug, Tennessean.com. I wrote a lot about this today. 2,000 word story about Will Levis, if y'all want to read it. But look, nobody was surprised. We spent four months of draft season hyping up the Titans as a surprise team to pick a quarterback. Ryan Tannehill's got one year left on his contract. The only other quarterback on roster is Malik Willis, who they benched after three starts in his rookie season in favor of a guy who they signed off of the Lions practice squad eight days earlier. They didn't necessarily have enough depth at quarterback to feel comfortable, especially with a GM like Rand Carthen coming from San Francisco, where if it weren't for a third-string quarterback last year, they missed the playoffs. Instead, they win 10 in a row and are the NFC's number one or two seed, I think two seed. It makes sense to go and get a quarterback, especially somebody who I think if Skaronsky was off the board at 11, I think they really would have considered Levis at 11. I, I, I don't necessarily know that for certain, but he seems like a guy that fits what they were saying of they're not going to pick just for need. They're going to pick the player who helps the team the most. And based off of reports from any reputable national source, the Titans were trying to trade back into the first round to get him. They weren't just trading up in the second round. They were making calls at 27, at 28, at 29, trying to get their guy. They got him at 33. They only had to give up, I think, eight, nine picks of positioning in the third round and a future third round pick to get him. Strategically, it makes sense. Strategically, there is nothing wrong with giving up a little to risk potentially having a franchise quarterback. That said, We've all watched Will Levis. We know the complaints about Will Levis. We know his inaccuracy. We know how he's turnover prone. We know how he kind of crumbled in SEC games compared to his big numbers in non-conference play. We know the regression from 2021 into 2022. We also know he's built like Hercules and he can throw a ball a mile and he comes from a pro-style offense and he scored really high on the S2 reasoning test and he's a very intelligent guy and he's a born leader and everybody who's been in the locker room with him raves about him. It's an interesting situation where you can really pick out the negatives and you can really pick out the positives. There's a reason he fell. He's not a proven commodity. Neither is Anthony Richardson, who went number four overall. I, I can't tell you how anyone would authoritatively say Anthony Richardson deserved to go in the top five, but Will Levis didn't deserve to go in the top 30. I also would have taken Richardson over Levis. But if one of them's a top five pick, I think the other one's a top 10 pick. And the Titans got immense value. That doesn't mean he's going to be good. That doesn't mean it's going to work out. It doesn't mean that it's going to work out for C.J. Stroud or Bryce Young or Anthony Richardson. We don't know anything. Nobody in the NFL draft knows anything. If we did, there wouldn't be busts. But there are every single year. So what do I make of it? We'll see if he's any good. Just like this time last year, we were saying, we'll see if Malik Willis is any good. But the, the pick makes sense. Your story plug is where I was going next. I read it before we did this interview. It was very good. I like the note about Thank him you. physically having a large mouth. It makes him a uh, one hell of a sight to see eating. You know what made me think I was old is you mentioned the note about how he does a great Borat impression. I was like, oh, that's great. That was a nice eye. Uh, that was a good movie. We were like middle school. Like, I bet that was a real hit. And then you were like, oh, wait, he was seven. And I'm like, holy crap, these guys are younger than me now. And he was, a, he was a five years of college guy. And he was seven when Borat came out. I know that I just, yeah, I might as well just put me out the pasture and put me in a home. I was like, wow, okay, never mind. Like this kid did, probably didn't go sneak in to see that R-rated movie. He was seven, but you, you cut, you did a deep dive on him. What did you get a sense? Like, how, what kind of sense did you get about what kind of person he is, personality wise? What did you get from reporting that story? 
he's he's such an interesting figure. I think one of my favorite lines in the story is Matt Hasselbeck, who I spoke to about him, referring to him as having the personality of a WWE tag team partner of somebody who's just going to pound the mat and scream next to you and and hype you up. And that's a that's a presence you want to have in a locker room, somebody who is so willing to give that sort of effusive praise and not have it be focused on him, especially as a quarterback. You want somebody who makes other people feel good about themselves. I, I talked to his, I'll tell this story. I don't think it made it into the story. So this will be an exclusive for the podcast. Um, well, we brought you on here, brother. Exclusive content. He, he was a big Patriots fan growing up in New England, growing up in Connecticut. And he had a Super Bowl party. His, uh, I guess, junior year going into senior year of high school for the Patriots Super Bowl, where they played the Falcons to make us feel old again. Um, and he uh, he was so excited, so bouncing off the walls, bananas excited about the comeback. And then a few months later, six, seven months later, they're playing North Haven High School in a in a game. And with five minutes left in the fourth in the third quarter, they're down 28 nothing. And then by the time the third quarter is over, it's 28, 21. And then it's 45, 45 going into overtime. And it's just this bonkers game. And they end up losing because the other team goes for two. They're like, we're not going to beat them. We just got to go for two when we've got a chance. And they ended up beating them. And it's the story of everybody just like leaning on Levis and praying on him that the defense is going to make a stop on this two point conversion because he had done everything. He had made every pass. He accounted for five touchdowns in the last 20 minutes of the game to get them there. And they're just praying on him, hoping that they'll win. And it didn't end up working out, but that's how integral he was to the team. He was almost the prayer rock. Uh, when when you hear stories like that about a guy, you think, oh yeah, no, there's there are some quarterback traits, quarterback qualities you like about him. And then the story you're alluding, alluding to about his mouth, he also just dared himself to eat a Big Mac in five seconds and did it to go along with the stories about him stirring mayonnaise into his coffee and uh, eating banana peels. He's just somebody who does what he wants to. So <laughs> I don't think he's trying to prove anybody wrong. I don't think he's sitting there like, oh, these 28 teams that passed on me or however many it was in the first round, I have to make them pay. They'll rue the day. I don't think he's got that Aaron Rodgers quality in him. I think he's just... Somebody who stirred mayonnaise into his coffee because he thought it might gross some people out. And that was funny to him. You covered college football for a long time. And yeah. every year, is like I've, there's like NFL guys, there's college guys. And I feel like there's people that cover it that also like the NFL. And there's like the few tweeners that watch both. And you see like the disconnect, at least in terms of on-field stuff, outside of like the traits and the intangibles and the projection to the next level. Where it's like, I watched that guy on Saturday. A week. How is he a top ten pick? Like I saw him. He couldn't beat. He couldn't beat Tennessee. He couldn't beat Vanderbilt. Like what's up with that? And it felt like you had two of those in this draft, Richardson and Levis. And it was like, are both of these actually going to go? And one of them didn't. In being Will Levis, he drops. The Colts talked themselves into Anthony Richardson. As someone who came from covering a college beat, how, what was it like kind of to adjust your eyeballs of like, okay, how is this guy, like what is he actually as a pro prospect versus what I saw on Saturdays every week? Yeah, it's this weird dichotomy of college fans want to draft players based on who they are, and NFL fans want to draft players based on who they can be. Yeah. And, and I think there's this just – obvious example floating in the ether after how many of us college guys were wrong about Josh Allen of, I remember I was beating my chest of like, this dude stunk. 
Like he's just not a good quarterback. You cannot draft somebody in the top 10 who is not good at playing quarterback and egg on all of our face. We were all wrong about it, but there are also many, many examples of guys who were not good college football players who didn't pan out to be good pro football players either. It's, it's an imperfect science draft scouting. So the adjustment was, it kind of made me change the way I thought about not just college players, but college coaching of sitting back and watching Anthony Richardson tape and thinking, man, is Billy Napier terrible? <laughs> like, like instead of blaming it on, Oh, this guy's only completing 53% of his passes. I'm thinking through it. And I'm like, why is everything he's throwing 22 yards downfield? Why is he averaging this many air yards? Why, why, why isn't the offense built to help him? And then you watch Kentucky and you think, man, 2021 when Will Levis was great, he was running play action on like 44% of his dropbacks. Why in 2022 did the new offensive coordinator drop it to about 18% play action? Like, what is he doing? Like, Will Levis is good at play action. Let him do that. And you start to externalize blame, which I don't love doing. I usually like to say if a football player makes mistakes, it's because the football player made a mistake. But you kind of have to see through what they did and start looking at, hey, how can a team use this guy? They're not going to use him the way the college team did. Nobody's going to draft Bryce Young and then just run Alabama's offense. They're going to run their scheme. They're going to find a way to use him. E even someone like CJ Stroud, who was incredibly successful in one scheme, he's going to have to adjust to something else in the pros. So you look at Will Levis, you look at Anthony Richardson, and you think, hey, take them independent of the pretty offensive line. Take them independent of the weird play calling gimmicks. Take them independent of the just brutal schedule that Florida had last year, take everything independent of it and say, how good can this guy be? And I think that's what the Colts were looking at when they picked Anthony Richardson. That's what the Titans were looking at when they traded it up for uh, Will Levis. And that's what Hendon Hooker ended up being a third round pick coming off an ACL injury when he's four or five months younger than Jeffrey Simmons. Like it's, you got to look at who the guy's going to be. And, and myself as a college football guy fell victim to never doing that. But I understand why you can talk yourselves into guys based off of projectability. What does he do well that kind of leads you to have evidence to talk himself what he can be? And what do you think he has to improve on the most to become a serviceable NFL quarterback? Yeah, so the thing I like most about Levis is what I mentioned about his ability to play and play action. I think he's really translatable as a play action quarterback. Somebody like what Ryan Tannehill has done, somebody like what Kirk Cousins has done, Matthew Stafford has done. He's good in the play action game. And coming out of his junior year at Kentucky playing for Liam Cohen as an offensive coordinator who ran the Sean McVay scheme. He came directly from the Rams. I think that that's translatable to doing what the NFL asks of you because obviously that's the most in vogue offense in the NFL is the Sean McVay tree. I think you look at his healthy year, his junior year when he wasn't battling through a broken toe and uh, a couple of fingers broken in that Ole Miss game that we all remember his junior year. He Averaged about six yards per carry and ran for nine touchdowns. His senior year, he was down to about four and a half yards per carry and only ran for two touchdowns. I think that that mobility is really impressive. I think that his arm strength is obviously off the charts. I don't necessarily think arm strength matters all that much, but for, for an offense that wants to incorporate more of a vertical component, I think that's something valuable. What he needs to work on is just, you know, not trying to be a hero is reading the field and taking what's there. It's really similar to what Malik Willis needs to work on, which is just be on schedule. Just do what the coaches ask of you. To use the Ole Miss metaphor that I'm sure a lot of people recall, 
it's Matt Corral and Rich Rodriguez's offense versus Matt Corral and Lane Kiffin's offense. In in the Rich Rod offense, Matt Corral just thought, oh, I've got to do everything. And he just did whatever he wanted and it didn't work. In Lane Kiffin's offense, he followed the rules. He said, I'm going to take what's there for me. And with the exception of one game in Fayetteville, he did what was there for him every single time and it worked. And he was a great quarterback at Ole Miss. But sometimes quarterbacks, when they come from a place where you're expected to be the whole offense. Malik Willis fell victim to this at Liberty. You don't really transition as easily to the pros because you got good guys around you. You're not playing with a bunch of two-star and three-star talents. Everybody in the league is a pro. You got to trust the guys around you. And I think that's going to be Levis's big transition is you're not playing hero ball. You don't need to fit everything into a tight window. You don't need to make every gigantic throw. Just check it down for three yards or take a sack or throw the ball away and try again next down. You mentioned there's so many parallels with all of this. You mentioned the Sean McVay, what's the most in vogue offense? I mean, the Sean McVay, um, Kyle Shanahan guy was his offensive coordinator the last year at Kentucky, did not go well. Rich Gangarello. Yeah. And it's interesting to me now you have both sides of it. You weren't covering the Titans at the time, doing kind of the NFL side of it, but you come into it a little bit later and then see them draft Levis. I know Levis was kind of prospecty. I will put it kind of in that same mix of how like, these guys could blow up this year type of thing. Kind of would say heading into last college football season. Then there was that one random Scangarello interview where he was like, I think this guy could be the number one pick in the draft. And then boom, the narrative just takes off. How much have you tried to, like you mentioned earlier, you're trying to figure out as a professional beat writer now, okay, everyone's telling me a bunch of stuff, what's true and what's not. Do you buy into that at all where it's just someone says something and then the people who maybe have not done their homework yet just continue to pile on because it sounded trendy? Like, if that does that make any sense at all? Did you sense any of that with Levis at all? I buy that for the people who do mock drafts for a living. I don't buy that from NFL Great teams. Point. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't buy that from NFL teams. They spend all day every day for four months trying to figure out their draft board. I don't think anyone's just going to be like, well, a lot of people like him. So what are we missing? <laughs> if you don't think he's good, you don't think he's good. So like, yeah, sure. There are people who spend every waking hour making mock drafts and I'm not going to say that's a bad thing. I think I did five mock drafts in the lead up to the draft. It's a good, fun way to engage readers. And I think mock drafts are awesome as a reader. I think a mock drafts are really cool as a writer. But a lot of it is groupthink. A lot of it is, well, this guy has him number 22 on his board. Why do I have him 40th? What am I missing? And then you watch it and you talk yourself into, well, well, I respect what he thinks, so I must have been wrong. And, and I don't think there's as much conviction in draft Twitter circles as there should be. And this is example number 3,442 of Twitter is not real life, you guys. Like what you see on Twitter isn't exactly what's going on in the real world. So I don't know. By the flip side of it, I, I looked this up um, and I've gotten written down here. So let's see if I can look at this. So since 2013, or sorry, since 2006, Will Levis and Hendon Hooker are two of the only three quarterbacks who on the day before a draft, Mel Kuyper has mocked in the first round that did not go in the first round. The That's only a other great one, note. The only other one is Drew Locke. So Drew Locke is the only other person that Mel Kuyper said was going to go in the first round, and he was wrong. Like, usually with quarterbacks, we know what's going to happen. So there was a weird disconnect there. It's not like every year people are saying, 
oh man, I'm positive that Brock Osweiler is going in the first round. And then he falls into the second round and people are banging. Kyle Trask, why isn't he in the first? Like, these aren't guys that we thought were going to go in the first round. Um, it rarely, rarely happens that somebody who you think is going to go in the 20s falls into the 40s, let alone somebody you think is going to go in the top five. Yeah, I think it's well put. And it's not like a bad thing. Like mock draft guys are in the content business where the scouting guys, like the the success of the billion dollar entity resides on like, hey, your your thing actually has to be correct. So with that in mind, what is the plan for the Titans at quarterback? Because they draft Malik Willis last year. You mentioned they benched him for a guy that they basically just known for eight days prior because it didn't go very well. I don't know how much of that can fairly be blamed on Malik Willis himself. It's two totally different regimes that drafted one versus the other when you talk about Willis and Levis. But it is kind of weird to see it play out that way. What? what and then you have the Titans who gave the Tannehill a bunch of money a couple years ago, but now you got two young guys in the mix. What do you get a read on of what the Titans, short-term, long-term, I don't even know how to phrase it, plan is at quarterback? I don't know if you're setting me up for another plug, but I wrote long about Malik Willis the other day. If anyone wants to read that as well, I talked to his private quarterbacks coach and it's fascinating Love it. where his, where his position is on this. Um, look, I don't know if any of you guys are trivia buffs, so I won't give the names away if you want to think on it. But in the last 10 years, there are only six examples of a team picking a quarterback in the top three rounds in back-to-back years. Two of them happened this year. One was Malik Willis and Will Levis, another Bryce Young and Matt Corral. The other four, not great news for the guys who were picked first. Okay. Um, It was the Los Angeles Rams, I guess St. Louis and then Los Angeles Rams, drafting uh, Sean Mannion before they drafted Jared Goff. And then Sean Mannion made one start with the Rams in four years and was... Uh, practice squad and backup for the rest of his career. Then it was Cody Kessler with the Browns picked the year before Deshaun Kaiser. Kessler was traded the next off season. It was Deshaun Kaiser picked the year before Baker Mayfield with the Browns. Kaiser was traded the next off season. And then it was Josh Rosen with the Cardinals picked the year before Kyler Murray, who was traded the next off season. It's not usually a good look for the guy that was picked the year before. Usually speaking, that guy's not really good. They've combined to make one start with their teams since the player after them was picked. That said, what I said earlier about Carthen knowing that having a third-string quarterback is immensely valuable with the 49ers, I do think that the Titans are going to be willing to carry three quarterbacks. So what does this mean for the future? It means you got two guys who are really going to work their ass off to replace Ryan Tannehill because... I don't see them giving an extension beyond this year. I don't think many people see that happening. I think a lot of people view this as this is Tannehill's final year in Tennessee, see him off well, and then start either a rebuild or reload, depending on how your young talent performs this year. I really don't know. I think that Levis is the safer bet uh, just based off of historic dynamics to pick over over Willis, but it's kind of an evil you know versus evil you don't know situation, right? Because Everybody saw Malik Willis and thought, oh, this guy's not ready to play. Go get somebody else. It's frustrating because anyone who has a long enough memory to remember this time last year, everybody was saying, oh, Malik Willis is a developmental guy. He's not going to be ready year one. Don't hold anything that happens against him. And now everybody's holding everything that happened against him. So 
I, I don't know. Short memories aren't the best thing when it comes to long-term planning, but Rand Carthen year one came and drafted a quarterback. Usually that probably means he's trying to cuff himself to somebody. Do you think, so it's interesting the way you frame that, because it makes a lot more sense now. It's like the, it's like the prelim of a rebuild and it feels like Tannehill, whenever his last game as a Titan is, is kind of the last major bandaid to rip off to get that whole thing ramped back up. Do you think he starts, if he's healthy, if he does not get injured, do you think he starts every game for the Titans this year? Every game tricky. That's real tricky. Cause I really don't know what the rest of the team around him is going to look like. I think he's going to start a majority, certainly a plurality of the games. Um, We'll say I, I think Levis is going to get a shot at some point, whether it's two series late in the game or whether it's a full game or whether it's Tannehill gets hurt. I, I don't know what it is. I think they're going to have to give Levis a try at some point if they view him as the future. It's not most teams don't have the patience of the Green Bay Packers to let Jordan Love sit for three years and then say, well, you're the starter now. I think most teams are going to want to see an unproven commodity manifest himself. But no, I would bet right now that if you set the over under it, 12 and a half starts for Ryan Tannehill. I still think I'd take the over. And another interesting dynamic is the division around them, right? They, yeah. they, it's been the butt of every joke of just like, this is one of the worst divisions in football. And you felt like he was just kind of there for the taking for the Titans until Jacksonville's kind of late second half of the season surge. And then you see the other two teams in the division who did not win it. That would be the Indianapolis Colts and the Tex, uh, the Houston Texans, and then obviously the Tennessee Titans, they take two quarterbacks in the top five, right? You get C.J. Stroud, they get Will Anderson, too, being the Texans. And then the Colts uh, talk themselves into drafting Anthony Richardson. What is from, like, the Titans frustration, Titans fans, like, frustration standpoint as part of that? Is it just the division seems gettable? How do you kind of see the future of this division and how that plays into fan angst? Just – there are always going to be two camps of fans. There are going to be the, who cares if this team can't win a Super Bowl, try to win as many games as you can. I want to root for a winner. And there are going to be the fans who say, if you're not good enough to win a Super Bowl, tear it down until you can be good enough to win a Super Bowl. Like we're not here for moral 10 and seven seasons. We're here to hopefully contend for a championship. The Titans have one other gigantic elephant in the room which is a $2.1 billion stadium that's coming down the pike. And so by 2027, when there's a new stadium in Nashville, this team's probably going to want to be good. You don't want to open up a $2 billion stadium and fill it with a 3-14 and 14 team. That's not a good look. So there's a weird clock on this team. And I think the only people on this team who can be under contract in 2027 are Jeffrey Simmons and Will Levis, or sorry, Jeffrey Simmons and Peter Skaronsky with his fifth-year option. Will Levis wasn't even a first-round pick. So we'll see. We, we will absolutely see um, what the dynamic is. But yeah, I do think that there's, there's an angst because uh, 13, 14, 15 months ago, this team was the number one seed in the AFC, looking like they were the anti-Chiefs, the anti-Bills, the anti-Bangles of building it the old school way, doing it right, playing hard-nosed, physical, defensive, and run-first football, and they were going to be the counterpunch to, to those great teams. Now they're coming off of a 7-10 and 10 season, and I think the odds makers have them as like the fourth worst odds to win the Super Bowl. It's, it's a very weird transformation for this team. There's going to be angst with that. There's going to be angst of, hey, weren't we at the top of the mountain two years ago? What the hell happened? But I also think, reasonably, there are some fans who think, okay, you got to go down to go up sometimes. Let's see what happens. 
If I told you next year that the Jacksonville Jaguars did not win the AFC South, who would your guess be who won it? I would say the Titans and then the Texans and then a pretty big gap until the Colts. I like what the Texans did this offseason. I might I might be in a minority there, but I think they made some really slick free agent moves to improve their roster. And then you go out and get CJ Stroud and Will Anderson in the first round. That's obviously going to be a fantastic addition for any team. I, I like what the Texans did. I think they're still probably two or three years away just based off of how inexperienced their coaching staff and roster is. But man, if the Titans didn't have to play 85 players last year, they win that division. If it's not for a Ryan Tannehill injury, if it's not for a Jeffrey Simmons injury, a Danico Autry injury, Harold Landry didn't play a snap last year, Taylor Lewan went down in the first quarter of game two. If you have these guys, they win that division. Now Jacksonville's going to be better because they were a team that came on late because they're a young team that's learning how to improve. And I think they're going to keep improving. They're on a positive trajectory. But let's not undersell just how good the Titans were before everybody got hurt. So I don't know. A lot of that same roster is there. A lot of that roster is still Derrick Henry is still there and Jeffrey Simmons is still there. Danico Autry, Harold Landry, Kevin Byer. There are some really, really good players on this team, not to mention Ryan Tannehill, who has been a really good quarterback since he's gotten to Nashville. So let's see. Let's just see if this team can stay healthy, how good these pieces actually are together. It's funny, the antithesis of just like the end inexact science of the quarterback thing is I was listening to a Bill Simmons podcast on Friday as I was driving to a uh, golf tournament in Greenwood. And he was like, he was kind of clowning on the Texans and what they did and traded up. And he's like, it seemed like the ownership wanted a quarterback. And then the coaching staff may have wanted a defensive guy or Will Anderson being their guy. And he was just like, I think this is a terrible trade. Will Anderson, like, what do we know? He's not going to be a sure thing. I was like, buddy, I saw that guy play every Saturday. I'm pretty sure he could be, I'm pretty sure he's pretty close to a real thing. Like if you want to question someone in that whole dynamic, I would probably not question Will Anderson. Uh, I saw him play for a couple of years. Dude's pretty good. It's just, I don't know. It's so, that's what makes the NFL the best. It's just such a, like, everything kind of is always in flux. You can't really tank it. And it's it's really just the best. But I just thought that was funny because he's no, a, no, no. a peak NFL guy. Like, he doesn't watch college. He's like, are we sure Will Anderson's going to be good? I'm like, I'm pretty sure, buddy. I saw that. Kinda I'm not the, the, part I'm not the best. Uh, I'll, yeah, I'll give ahead. you one note on Will Anderson. I'm not the best comps guy. I'm not usually <laughs> the best at looking at college guys and saying, oh, that's who he is. I look at Will Anderson and I just say, that's DeMarcus Ware. End of conversation. That's DeMarcus Ware. He's in the Hall of Fame. That's DeMarcus Ware. That, that would be a pretty good, if his career mirrored DeMar, uh, DeMarcus Ware, that would uh, that would be a pretty good uh, draft pick well spent. Uh, last kind of serious thing for, I got a couple of rapid fire things before I let you get out of here. You you were, as always, as someone we just talked sports through conversation, you do like the NFL draft. You do like evaluating players. Did you just look around the National Football League? Like, whose draft did you like? It, uh, Titans aside, like, who else did you think? Okay, they did pretty well here. I really liked what Seattle did. I, I I had a high grade on Jackson Smith and Jigba. I think that had the Titans picked him at 11, it wouldn't have been a bad pick. But to get him at 20 where the Seahawks did, uh, Devin Witherspoon was a guy who might have been a reach at five, but pairing him with Tarek Woolen in that secondary, that's going to be a really good one-two punch in the secondary, kind of rebuilding that legion of boom. And you go through the rest of their draft. I, I was pretty impressed with what they did. I think the Colts had a really solid draft. I I... I had Josh Downs rated as probably the third or fourth best receiver in this draft, and they were able to get him in the low 70s in the third round. I think that was an absolute steal right there. I would have taken him way ahead of Zay Flowers, who went like 22nd overall. Um, so I, I really liked what the Colts did. I think that 
it's never a surprise when the Baltimore Ravens have a good draft. They're really good at drafting. So uh, not breaking any ground to say they did a good job. Generally, I'm more positive than negative when it comes to drafts. I, I really, there are maybe two, three guys every year that I'm just like, oh, I wouldn't have picked that guy. Most of the time it's like, oh yeah, I like that guy. That's a good draft pick. That's that's a solid player right there. So yeah, I, I, I came away pretty positive with most teams' drafts that weren't the Detroit Lions. What's Vrabel like to deal with? I feel like he's like similar to the Mike Bianco school. I always make the joke of Mike Bianco talks to everyone like he treats umpires. What does Vrabel like to deal with? When the cameras aren't on him and when he's one-on-one, he's a regular dude. I, I talked to him. One of my first stories I did, we uh, we at the Tennessean named him sports person of the year for 2022. So I sat down with him for about a half hour right before the Eagles game, actually, which ended up being really Better sitting timing. down with him after that game. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunate timing based on when the story had to run. But yeah, he he's a really good dude. But he does have that Bianco calculatedness at the podium of trying to parse through why people are asking him what they're asking him. And there is also the whole, if you mention words like analytics or next-gen <laughs> stats around him, he's I'd like going to shove to- this nerd in the locker yeah, yeah, there there is a very much what do you think you know that I don't kind of dynamic and fair. Dude's a three-time Super Bowl champion. He knows a lot about football. But no, he's he's good to deal with. There's there's nobody that I've run into that I've thought, oh, that guy's a jerk. Like there are some people who it's like, oh, they're not good at talking. But I remember my first game, that Texans game, uh, on October 30th, we're riding up the elevator and everybody's like, Man, that Derrick Henry interview is the worst interview I've done in years. Dude only talked for five minutes, didn't say anything worthwhile. This was dreadful. I was like, you talked to a 19-year-old freshman recently? You've done an interview with any college athlete? You talked to Jacob Gonzalez recently? I love Jacob, but like, dude, it's, it's night and day when you're talking to pros. These guys in college, they're just trained to not say anything, and they're afraid to mess up. And so sometimes you have great interviews and I, we covered our fair share of great interviews at Ole Miss. I'm sure you've got stories like I do of Doug Nikhazy and John Rice Plumley and Jerry and Ely and some of these fantastic interviews, but man, there are some bad ones too. How about inter- uh, Kadir Shepard? I don't know if you could cuss. Yeah, yeah I was there. I was there. Just entertaining. Uh, PG 13, sometimes R rated. <laughs> I enjoyed his. Vrabel did infamously tell the part of my take guys a few years ago he would chop his penis off to win a Super Bowl. In 2030, when the Titans win a new Super Bowl, if you're still covering the Titans, you've written long-form stories lately, 2,000 words. You're like, Can I get 2,500 words on how you how you do this? Yeah, no. If if Mike Vrabel gets a 15-year leash to win a Super Bowl, that's that's something else. So if it's 2030, that's, that's, a, that's a lot more than 2,500 words. Coolest place you've been so far. Oh, it actually led into a story I wanted to tell earlier that I think your uh, listeners might appreciate. I was sitting at Lambeau after the game. It was a snowy Thursday night game. It was everything you want Lambeau to be. TV Um, porn. I was sitting under the stadium where the press conference room was, visitor's press conference, and we were waiting for Derrick Henry to get out of the shower to talk to to him. And somebody taps me on the shoulder and just kind of bashfully goes, you're Nick, right? I'd been on the beat for like three weeks. So I was really confused. And I'm just like, who the hell knows me? Why would anyone know me? This doesn't make any sense. And I turn around. I'm like, yeah, yeah, what's up? And it's this uh, uh, camera reporter, TV reporter from Milwaukee. And he just goes, this is going to sound weird. Hear me out. I am a gigantic Ole Miss baseball fan. 
Oh, interesting. <laughs> and I was just like, tell, tell me more, tell me more. Uh, it turns out, I think his name's Kyle. Kyle, if you're listening, hello. Um, he worked in the Northwoods League and knew Tim Elko from their time at Fond du Lac, wherever Elko played in Northwoods League his sophomore year. And he just kept following Ole Miss. And he was like, dude, you were you were such an invaluable resource trying to follow them all the way from up here in Wisconsin. I was, I was hooked on everything you wrote during Omaha. That was incredible. So thank you for that. I'm so glad you did. I'm like, I am going to be on my deathbed and somebody's going <laughs> to whisper, don't let the revs get hot at me. <laughs> like this is going to be my enduring legacy is that people are going to remember me as the guy who covered that college world series run. But no, that was really cool just to be sitting there in between interviewing Mike Frabel and Derrick Henry, thinking, oh, I'm at Lambeau Field. This is the coolest thing I've ever seen. This is awesome. This is the NFL. And somebody's like, what's Garrett Wood like? It's just, he didn't say that, but that would have been incredible. Um, it's just like the, the Ole Miss baseball fandom is sincere. And as somebody who accidentally got hooked into it and has watched more Ole Miss baseball this year than he has any right to, that was a, that was a really fun experience. That is awesome. Do you get to go across the pond this year? Did the Titans get lumped into the Ger- Germany, England? What, what do you got going? Are you going they're, over to Europe? They're, play, they're playing at Tottenham on October 15th, hosting the Ravens. So I am very much looking forward to that. That's going to be fantastic. We're a big soccer podcast now. I might need to report back on what it's like over there with the Brits and the soccer and all that, but I, that sounds pretty awesome. I'll, I'll give you a report as a, as a devoted wakes up in – about 15 minutes late, but still catches some of the first half to watch my beloved Wolverhampton Wanderers every Saturday. They've uh, been hot lately. I've been, I've, been I've hot. learned a lot about soccer. I've started getting to the point where I'll wake up and watch it. They're the big team with a bunch of Portuguese guys. They sucked yep. at scoring goals early, and now they're a little hot. They're way out of the relegation zone. Yeah, yeah. They're up at about 13th in the table, and they're probably, I think, seven points out of the top 10. They won't get there, but you hire Lopetegui. He's, he's, he's brought this team back. Go, go Wolves. We'll have to tie this up perfectly. Any new sitcoms you're on? What you got rolling on the uh, off time? Oh, so what have I been watching recently? I've been watching recently a lot. Shrinking was fantastic on Apple TV. Soccer-wise, Ted Lasso is still working. It's still a very proficient show. I think Shrinking kind of lapped it this year. Same writing staff. Brick Goldstein created it. He plays Roy Kent. Uh, if you want to watch a show about sad therapists, but also written by the people who wrote Scrubs. So zany, sad therapists. Jason Siegel's fantastic in it. Um, Rob Lowe's show on Netflix that just came out, shockingly competent. It's very dumb, but shockingly competent. Pete Davidson's show. If you want to watch the most surprising sex scene you've ever seen, watch the pilot of Bupkis on uh, Peacock. That's the only tease I will give you. It is not even based off of being a Pete Davidson show. You would not exactly think it is what it is and if you want to know what i'm really watching uh jeopardy masters the jeopardy masters tournament i genuinely had to spend 10 minutes cooling down last night because i got so excited cheering on just jeopardy dorks i can this isn't a zoom podcast so not everybody else will see this but i'll show rippy just to show the depths of mine and my wife's dorkiness we keep score of every single episode of jeopardy um (laughs) And here are our correct. It won't show. It won't get white enough. Um, I saw it. Yeah, yeah, there I you go. There we go. Yeah, yeah. The scores of every single episode this year of how many correct answers we've gotten right and wrong. Um, we're we're a big Jeopardy household, and I will always plug. Hey, you should be watching Jeopardy. It's the best sport on television. Like the NBA and NHL playoffs are happening right now, and I will tell you, Jeopardy is the best sport. 
that's amazing. He is Nick Suss, a real renaissance man, Titans beat writer, sitcom connoisseur. I really appreciate the time, my man. It was great to catch up with you. And uh, when the Titans win a Super Bowl, we'll talk to you then. Yeah, let's catch up before then. But either way, we'll, we'll talk. All right. That was Nick Suss. Good catching up, catching up with an old pal. We'll be back back at you on Sunday with Colin Brister. And i uh, got a couple good interviews lined up next week. Thanks for listening to this podcast. As always, y'all have a wonderful weekend.